Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast, audio essay edition. I'm Robert Fay, and I've been thinking about and reading Alexander Theroux recently, in particular an essay he wrote in 1972 called Theroux Metaphrastes, an essay on literature. It's a stirring indictment of the linguistic poverty in American literature of the day, and it is just as relevant now as when it was written 50 years ago. And when you read Theroux, your nose is constantly in a dictionary, and he isn't showing off. He's simply using the most accurate, appropriate word for his intention there and then. And as Stephen Moore noted, he happens to have 500 years of the English language at his disposal. In his essay, Thoreau characterizes the minimalist approach as a Calvinist mode of writing, which is a theme I wanted to explore in more detail. So here is my essay, The Calvinism in Our Literature. Martin Luther spent the winter of 1522 hiding at Germany's Wattberg Castle. It was a smart move, for he had challenged the Roman Catholic Church's monopoly on biblical interpretation and the pardoning of sins, and was not likely to receive a Christmas card or much else in terms of support from Pope Adrian VI that year. This rather anxious Augustinian monk wasn't a conscious saboteur of institutions and norms. He was no Jacobin but a devout personage, and almost certainly a sufferer of obsessive-compulsive disorder by today's standards. His writings reveal a nagging fixation on whether he was in a state of mortal sin or not, no small matter in 16th century Germany. In the Catholic tradition, this is a spiritual malaise known as scrupulosity, and it often afflicts the super-devout, and has indeed included a number of canonized saints throughout the centuries. We also know that Luther, despite his non-servium, was not an agent provocateur, because he was appalled at the subsequent damage and sacrilege committed against Catholic churches and monasteries in his name. A contemporary report catalogs the damage to the Reinhardtsbrunn Monastery in Germany. Quote, With sacrilegious hands, the rabid people smashed all 23 altars with their precious carvings, sculptures, and holy images because they were objects of Catholic veneration of saints. They emptied the holy oil of consecration from its beautiful jug and poured it on the ground. End quote. In the language of today's politics, we can say Luther's disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences, his so-called 95 Theses, had been weaponized. And it wasn't long before this supercharged reform movement had come to the wilds of North America. The late conservative historian Samuel P. Huntington believed American national identity was initially formed by Protestant Christianity, something he called Anglo-Protestant culture. Huntington designated the early New England settlers, the Puritans, as the founders of this culture, and the Puritans were nothing if not strict Calvinists. Historian David Hall writes, quote, citizens on both sides of the Atlantic believe that the intellectual descendants of Calvin were the founders of colonial America, end quote. The Calvinists were undoubtedly descendants of Luther's scrupulosity, but their reductionist version of Christian discipleship, wherein man was entirely polluted by sin, quickly diverged from Luther's direct line. We can see this divergence in a superficial look at the Christian communities of two contemporaries, J.S. Bach and American theologian and preacher Jonathan Edwards. The former was a choir master in a German Lutheran church whose liturgy and preaching, if observed today, would strike many as nearly indistinguishable from a Catholic church experience, while Edwards, the Calvinist preacher in Northampton, Massachusetts, served at a simple woodclad church. Though dignified by today's brutalist standards, it was largely indistinguishable from the whitewash New England town halls of the era. And when it comes to doctrinal matters, he wasn't just down on Catholic priests and indulgence. He actually decided human beings were all bad all the time and born with perdition as their lodestar. And it was only God's sympathy for our wretchedness that saved us. 
One simple way to appreciate how American Calvinism diverged from the Lutheran High Church experience is to listen to Bach's Mass in B minor, and then read through Edward's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, though I don't recommend you do that in the same afternoon. The weaponization of theology was not entirely perfected until a Swiss Bible thumper named John Calvin turned German scrupulosity into a war on aesthetic sensibilities, preaching, quote, the first vice, and as it were, the beginning of evil, was that when Christ ought to have been sought in his word, sacraments, and spiritual graces, the world, after its custom, delighted in his garments, vests, and swaddling clothes, and thus overlooking the principal matter, followed only its accessory. Scratch a Calvinist doctrine, and beneath the surface you will find a prudish fear of the sensual life, a horror of ornamentation, fashion, both ecclesiastical and secular, objet d'art, architectural refinement, grape and grain. In other words, some of those very things that provide us with pleasure. Today, in nearly any American town, you can easily find a church building that has all the sacred mystery of a wholesale auto parts store, or if you're lucky, the architectural distinction of a Motel 6. But this anti-aestheticism, this distrust of ornamentation, isn't confined to evangelical churches alone. It's the trace minerals in our environment, the hammer and saw in our toolboxes. You can find it in Shaker Furniture, the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright, the simplicity of the White House, the prose of Ernest Hemingway, Raymond Carver and Lydia Davis, the music of Philip Glass, the paintings of Mark Rothko, examples of Bound. And these are the best examples of this phenomenon, the examples of individual artists or communities who were not overcome by this Genevan inheritance. And of course, U.S. history contains a number of distinct artistic moment, movements and artists who entirely rejected Puritan restraints. African-American jazz artists are the preeminent example, but other examples include the paintings of Jackson Pollock, Basquiat, and the prose of Jack Kerouac, all of whom, not coincidentally, were sophisticated jazz connoisseurs. I suspect many American novelists today would consider themselves immune to their Puritan forebears because they are secular or, if religious, affiliate themselves with gay-friendly churches or attend Unitarian services. But many writers remain enmeshed in a Calvinist anti-aesthetic, applying their Iowan woodshop craft under the delusion of novelty, producing well-plotted, embellishment-free works with all the originality and linguistic panache of a pharmaceutical brochure. These men and women are undoubtedly earnest, multi-degreed bearing citizens with the skill to invent characters and zippy narratives that can both entertain and edify, helping to ensure the book club hummus and pita crowd who can, as a result, conclude their busy weeks with the sweet, self-satisfied pride of believing just by reading a 300-pound page story about fictional people, that they are now sanctioned empathizers of marginalized people everywhere, from Calcutta to Camden, New Jersey. Roberto Bolano's novel, Woes of the True Policeman, begins with a character, Oscar Amalfitino, who is familiar to readers of Bolano's masterwork, 2666. Amalfitino describes the bizarre literary theory developed by his gay lover, Padilla, a hardscrabble poet from the streets of Barcelona. Quote, according to Padilla, all literature could be classified as heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual. Novels in general were heterosexual. Poetry, on the other hand, was completely homosexual. Padilla then goes on to divide the homosexual category of poets into a number of subcategories using various slang terms for gay men, queer, sissies, freaks, and so on, as well as a number of additional epithets likely to offend the sensibilities of 2021 America. Padilla's theory is, of course, ridiculous, but it is great fun to read his endless digressions on specifically why pa Pablo Neruda is this type of homosexual poet in his system, while Walt Whitman is quite another. 
Bolaño has fun with language, stereotypes, the egos of the literati, while casually demonstrating an encyclopedic knowledge of Spanish and Latin American poets. Theroux's essay is largely forgotten, and it did not do anything as banal as classifying novelists, but in his acrid condemnation of linguistic skinflints, he did loosely employ the aesthetic and theological tensions between Catholicism and Protestantism to make his point. He wrote, quote, Oh, let the long-nosed, umbrella-carrying joy-killers kick the pins out from under metaphor and simile, color and illusion. It was just exactly what that simpering Genevan woodcock, Jack Calvin, tried to do to the Roman Catholic Church, and I, for one, say poo. And Theroux, a former Trappist monk who knew his Latin as well as he knew his Baltimore catechism, remained baffled that American writers continue to maintain a, quote, utter void, apparently, when it comes to a knowledge of what we have inherited from the beautiful Franco-Latin-English trilingualism of the Norman period, end quote. Theroux is a man who sees villains everywhere, one likely reason he is persona non grata in today's publishing world. And he cites Mark Twain as the grandfather of the American Less is More set. Eskew surplusage, snapped Twain, that anti-European, anti-Catholic pinch fist from the American Midwest. Rip off that wainscoting, slubber that gloss, steam to have those thrills, end quote. There are occasions in American literature where this tension has generated its own creative energy, most spectacularly in the poetry of Robert Lowell, Lowell came from a distinguished family of New England blue bloods with deep Yankee Puritan roots, yet briefly converted to Catholicism during a critical creative period in his 20s. And this cosmological outlook and aesthetic influence of the Catholic Church never left him. Kay Redfield Jameson, in her recent book on Lowell and his bipolar disorder, writes how within Lowell, quote, the battle raged between Calvinism, the New England Protestantism that he had known longest and breathed most deeply, and the Catholicism that has an adult he had taken to heart and mind. The clash entered his work violently and unforgettably in the poems of the Lord's Weary Castle, end quote. The corrective to the codified linguistic reductionism within American letters is, of course, that there is no real answer. There is no union of North American fiction writers to issue a memo banning the use of realist, naturalistic, minimalistic modes of fiction in American letters. But there are certainly grumblings of discontent. Prominent critic. Dusting Illingworth recently wrote of his exhaustion with realistic fiction, quote, more and more I find the realist novel's conscription of detail to describe and systemize the external world frictionless, even embarrassing, end quote. And Stephen Moore's new book, Alexander Theroux, a fan's notes, can only be read as a subtle plea by one of America's most important critics to rethink and reabsorb the work of this singular author. In the end, what seems to be missing is a simple enchantment with language, which brings me rather inexplicably to a most un-American writer, Rabelais, that 16th century Frenchman, a rascally character who is a historical reminder that literature can be fun, raunchy, edifying, linguistically complex, and well fun. Rabelais is one of Theroux's heroes, and also quite conveniently for my argument, a creature of Catholic culture, albeit a rebellious one who spent time in two religious orders as a novice, the Franciscan and the Dominican orders, before becoming a secular priest, i.e. not affiliated with a religious order, and did so without permission from the church. 
while also managing to have two children from a relationship with a lovely widow. Needless to say, he was no choir boy, but this is precisely the point. The critic and scholar L. Casimian, in his A History of French Literature, sums up the pure joy of reading Rabelais, which is really the whole point of this essay, in fact. Quote, words, an inexhaustible store of language, learned or popular, national, provincial, dialectical, foreign, with artificial terms thrown in, words that are to the writer a source of unique joy. Thank you for listening. To check out a written version of my essay, go to robertfay.com. And remember to follow the Feeling Bookish podcast on Twitter and Instagram. We appreciate your support. Bye now. Thank you.